Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Despite work playing a significant role in mental health and well-being, many military personnel with mental illness are being discharged rather than rehabilitated back in, into their roles or other occupational settings. To enhance return to work rates, particular attention should be directed towards early intervention for PTSD symptomatology. It's imperative that military personnel receive gold standard PTSD treatment prior to being diverted on a medical discharge route as many personnel can be returned to work safely. Helping our frontline workers access greater support services is this week's podcast guest, Dr. Andrew Koo, consultant psychiatrist and director of day programs and medical director at Tawong Private Hospital. Andrew is the chair of the RANZIP Committee for the Military, Veterans and Emergency Services Personnel Mental Health Network. He's also a member of the Department of Veterans Affairs Expert Advisory Group. Andrew is a member of the ACSQHC Expert Advisory Group informing the Australian Commissioner's review into military and veteran suicide. He sits on the Queensland Police Service Injury Management Advisory Group and has externally reviewed policy for the Australian Federal Police and the QPS. This week, Andrew sits down with me to discuss how tailored PTSD treatments can benefit our frontline workers and assist their transition back into the workplace. Dr. Andrew Koo, thanks very much for joining us today and sharing your story and everything you're up to with our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, no worries at all. Um, Andrew, tell us where it started for you as far as getting into psychiatry and like what interested you in the first place to, to do this? Look, it's, it's probably a, a um, fairly cliched answer, but I'm, I've always been interested in people and, um, uh, and certainly in, in people's health which is kind of what drew me to medicine. My father was a, was a general practitioner. So, okay. um, and, it's in know, the blood. Yeah, and often you, know, often you want to be like your dad. Yeah. And uh, I have an older brother and he also did medicine. And, and so um, I think we both always knew we wanted to be doctors, me and my brother, so we, we went into that. Um, but I never thought I'd be a psychiatrist uh, and certainly all through... Uh, medicine, I was more focused on other things uh, uh, like surgery. So um, what happened to me was in my 
uh, intern and residency years when, when you're just being worked very hard and I was just trying to find out, you know, what I wanted to do, I just ended up ruling things out rather than ruling things in. And the funny thing was, the irony was that the two things left to me in my, in my residency year were to do either orthopaedics or psychiatry and they are about as far apart as you can get in medicine. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure any uh, colleagues that listen will have a bit of a chuckle at that. Um, <laughs> and as it turned out, um, my brother had also gone into psychiatry and we're very similar and uh, was enjoying it. I, I was lucky enough to, to be offered a, a training position early um, in that specialty at the, the Royal Brisbane where I was at. Yes. And um, so that's, that's how I got drawn into psychiatry in the first place. And, and at the end of my psychiatry, um, more interestingly, and, and around the Frontline Conference, which we're talking around today, at the end of uh, my psychiatry, I didn't know which part of psychiatry I wanted to go into, but when I trained in the last year, you had to write like a thesis Yes. That was your final part of assessment to become a, a fellow of the college. And I had no idea what I wanted to do there either. Um, the director of, of my training position at that time said, look, there's a private hospital position. Do you want to want to go for that? You know, uh, it's, it's sort of fairly new, you know, because you know, I'm over 50 now. And, and so training in, in private sector was really rare at that point. Everyone got trained out of the public system. So I mm-hmm. sort of thought, oh, that's different and you know, I don't know anyone else that's done this, so I might as well go and give that a crack. I think I was the second ever registrar to train at that hospital, and that was a private hospital. So I went over and, and uh, got an introduction into private psychiatry, which was really good. At the time, there was uh, a senior colleague that was working there that was, that was running programs for veterans, um, Vietnam veterans at that stage that were struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. I knew nothing about post-traumatic stress disorder, zero. Yeah, so I right. didn't, didn't know whether I was interested in it or anything like that, but certainly knew that it existed and knew what it took to diagnose it and all that kind of stuff. But like in the public system, you learn very little really, and this is one of the problems of psychiatric training, is you learn very little about disorders outside of low prevalence, high severity conditions, which is all the public system uh, has the capacity to deal with. Right. So the broader aspects and most of the psychiatry that's out in the community, unfortunately, we know nothing about, which yeah. is mood and anxiety disorders. So of which at that point, PTSD was classified as an anxiety disorder. Right, right now or as of in the last sort of decade, it's now moved to be in its own sort of category of disorders yeah. in the newer sort of newer uh, diagnostic nosology but anyway so i decided to work with this guy it sounded interesting started working with veterans loved it Lo- thought veterans were a great group of people to work with really felt i'd landed in a place that was also very interesting to me i found post-traumatic stress disorder of many psychiatric disorders really understandable in fact it's uh, the way I see it is it's kind of different to all the other psychiatric disorders. I mean, they're all different, the disorders, but yeah. PTSD, well, most psychiatric disorders you could lump in a big group and say this is basically people that act abnormally in a normal situation. Mm. But if you look at PTSD, PTSD is really the extension of a normal response to a very abnormal situation. Right. So it's really quite different. And it was logical to me and that works with my mind. And So anyway, 
I wrote my thesis on, on the treatment of PTSD with psychotherapy in groups in veterans. Wow. And I was lucky enough to win a medal from the Australian New Zealand College based on that thesis, and I was locked in from there. Well, that's incredible. A so, long story. So, so, you, so you, you just something within you just understood it and you thought this is logical as far as understanding the disorder goes and the solutions as well around to how to treat it. Yeah, and in fact the solutions in many ways are very logical as well in that if you see uh, PTSD like an anxiety disorder or like other anxiety disorders, um, it's really, there's a very rational explanation of why it happens in that, for instance, if you take a classic anxiety disorder or a basic anxiety disorder that most people would understand is, is like a, arachnophobia, for example. So people are really scared of spiders. They're unnaturally and excessively afraid of, and therefore they will avoid. Okay, PTSD is like that, except the phobic stimulus is a memory right. rather than a spider. And okay. so the way to treat it, and as far as we know in all our evidence now, the best way to treat it in terms of outcome and research says that you need to expose people to those memories and get them over that phobia. Right. Almost like to relive the trigger. In a way, in a supported fashion usually. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very difficult for patients. And it, this is the real art of, of treatment. Yep. You know, I mean, it, it makes rational sense but to take someone back to something they spend most of their time trying to avoid yes. and stay away from takes a lot of trust so it's it's a difficult thing to do but very rewarding and and certainly uh, exposure-based treatments are what we call our gold standard at this point i'm keen to get in that gold standard you referred to a lot but tell me is this over a long period of time What's the typical time frame and is there a typical time frame? In terms of treatment? Yeah, like yeah, the reaction and, and how people respond to this exposure treatment. Okay, so to talk about the treatment length itself, if that's what you're referring to, it is, it's not, it doesn't get better quickly. And this okay. is what, um, you know, this is what I tell a lot of my registrars, a lot of junior psychiatrists that I work with. Um, is that you, know, you need to understand that this, this isn't a condition that gets better quickly. It is, um, you know, the therapy itself is built on trust between the person and the therapist, yeah. the patient and the therapist, and very much you get incremental gains as that kind of trust increases. Okay. And, um, and once you've reached a place where there is that therapeutic fit for a start and then that trust that exists between... Uh, the treater and the person being treated, you can get some really good compounding gains in wow. therapy. But we're talking years. Yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's not weeks, it's not months, it's years. No. And, and is it a circum in some circumstances, do you go backwards before you go forwards? Yes. And, and this is the same for any kind of exposure-based treatment for any anxiety disorder is you're going to uh, what we call, you're going to psychologically arouse people if you expose them to their greatest fears. Yeah. But what you're trying to do is to teach them that their fear is excessive. Yes. You know? And to do that takes a lot of trust. Yes, I, I'd imagine that. And so was your brother also delving in, because he went into psychiatry as well, but did he go down the PTSD? No, he, so okay. his specialty is bipolar disorder. And he, okay. Yeah, so he, um, 
he went a different route. And, and it was probably about time we went the different route. Yeah, <laughs> following I'd each been other. following him for too long. <laughs> So, so as far as PTSD goes, tell me about the – you've made a few comments in certain articles that I've certainly read talking about the, the different drugs that get prescribed to veterans and the impact that this can have on their treatment or recovery with PTSD. Tell us a little bit about that and your thoughts on that. Okay, well, this is a long story, as in there's so many things that need to be said about this. But the, the, first, the, the first comment that – needs to be made around the use of medication or pharmacotherapy in the treatment of PTSD is that it is a secondary treatment. Right. It's not gold standard. It's, it's not really even primary. Okay. You know, the first treatments that need to be and the first treatments that need to be employed and the keystone or foundation treatments are psychotherapy. Yes. And that purely comes from the evidence of what works and what doesn't. So the evidence for the use of psychotherapy in PTSD in terms of the, the power of the effect. So the evidence is good in the use of, of psychotherapy, and particularly like I was saying before, with the best evidence for exposure-based treatments. The evidence for medications reducing the core symptoms of PTSD up until now is poor. Is that right? So there's numerous levels between poor and good. So that's the first thing. The second thing to say is that it really, you really should not be using medications unless psychotherapy's already started. And it's my opinion that given the evidence and also in my experience of treating, I think I've been involved in the treatment of over 2,000 people with PTSD now and, mm -hmm. and over 20 years, is that medication really should be used to minimise the symptoms that may decrease the successful uptake of psychological therapy and may reduce an individual's capacity to practice what they need to practice or to expose themselves and, and be able to manage. So things like, you know, trying to improve sleep. Yes. Anyone, anyone that doesn't sleep well can't think and process as well and has a shorter fuse and everything like that, you know, to manage severe depression or manage severe anger or agitation, all those things can decrease an individual's capacity to uptake psychology. And the, probably a very important thing that needs to be mentioned around medication use is because there's no gold standard treatment for, or medication for PTSD, and I'll just add then, particularly if there's uh, doctors listening in the audience, <laughs> is that the, the, the best evidence for any medication is for antidepressants. Yes. That's the best evidence. And really, they would be indicated in people who don't have access to people trained in running the psychotherapy that you need, to, you know, that's gold standard, or B, have some kind of contraindication or inability or make a specific patient choice not to do exposure-based therapies. Okay. Okay, so then you would use antidepressants. But really, because there's no gold standard, no, perf no great for it, PTSD, the prescribing for PTSD is haphazard, idiosyncratic, and follows no pattern. Yeah, it's ad hoc. Yep, all around the world. Yeah. Okay, and particularly that's the case in Australia. And so, therefore, what we see is people prescribing what they think works, or yeah. what somebody told them works, or what they've had experience prescribing and in, in their patient population seen benefit. Okay, or 
off a paper, you know, that might have been published somewhere that says this particular drug, I use this particular drug and it worked. Not, not necessarily really good evidence, but just almost like a case reviews or case series type research. So the other problem is that if you combined all that, so for instance, I did a talk recently at, at the, my college conference, which looked at medication prescribing in, in PTSD. And I started sitting down, writing down different things that I've seen my PTSD patients prescribe. Mm. And when I got to 70, I stopped. Yeah. Just drugs. Fair dinkum. Just 70. Yeah. I just stopped. That's enough. And that's kind of made a point. But if you add that kind of prescribing to the fact that a lot of people with PTSD, and we've heard in the last, one of the last lectures, mm. is that a lot of people with PTSD have comorbid physical problems as well. Yes. Those comorbid physical disabilities and particularly if you look at frontline emergency services and military people they've all got often they've had injuries like orthopedic injuries or they have premature joint pathology and stuff like that so chronic pain and we heard like we heard before you know increased amounts of cardiovascular disease respiratory disease you know cancer and all this kind of stuff so all these other doctors are seeing them all these other drugs are being prescribed and so you get generates polypharmacy basically in this group. Cocktails of different drugs. Okay. So, so when, we, when we refer to the gold standard of PTSD treatment, what is it and how is it achieved? At this point, and let me also qualify these comments by saying even with our gold standard in inverted commas treatments, we're still only getting reasonable results in two-thirds okay. of patients. Okay, which some people would say that's not gold standard. Yeah, you know, you've still okay. got thirty percent of people having chronic, ongoing, severe conditions. But compared to what it was, I assume, or what what else is out there, mm-hmm. that success rate is quite good. Yeah, there's, it's all we know. Okay, you know what I mean. So there's still yeah. we don't achieve, even with our best treatments, an optimal outcome. Yeah. at this point, but. Those, those gold standard treatments or those best treatments that we have available to us at the moment from what all the bodies around the world research and have found, like I said before, what we call exposure-based treatments or trauma-focused is a synonym for that, trauma-focused therapies. And these trauma-focused psychotherapies are probably in three, three different forms that are, that are advocated and they, one's called prolonged exposure, one's called cognitive processing therapy and the last one is trauma-focused eye movement desensitization and reprocessing right okay and so you've seen and that that is that's in the research the papers are out on that and that's the current approach to gold standard of what most people are adopting correct in in, in this so that's what worldwide clinical practice guidelines advocate Okay, now as it goes to the military side of things and the return to work aspect and, and discharging, well, prematurely, prematurely in some instances, discharging officers when instead they could be rehabilitated back into their roles or other occupations within the force. Tell us about the approach that you have taken with your research and the fi- findings that you've found with that. Okay, so if we look at the military, for example, because this is the cohort that, that we studied, the military, there are many 
soldiers that medically discharge with psychological problems as a result of exposure to trauma. There are also many, and this has been less formally kind of evaluated because you can't, but there is also a significant population of soldiers that discharge from the military administratively because of psychological problems, but they don't want to medically discharge because there's a stigma associated with that. Gotcha. So there is a lot of military personnel that have a truncated military career due to psychological difficulties as a result of trauma experienced at some stage in their military career or maybe on, well, usually on multiple occasions during their military career. My issue, and this is a broad issue, one of the issues that I'm really, I am really passionate about is that psychological conditions within the military need to start to be seen to be processed, assessed and treated in the same way as physical. So, for example, if you break your arm, you leave your unit, you go and get your orthopedically assessed and treated, and there's this expectation that you'll get in the gym, you'll do your rehabilitation, and you'll be back with the unit within six weeks, right? right? Or, or, or earlier, rehabilitating with the unit, you know, as you're getting back to full function, right? Yes. Lighter duties and then back to your normal duties. Whereas historically with psychological issues, it was, and obviously this will differ depending on particular places, but very much there's been this stigma, just like there is in the Australian commun broader community on, yeah. towards mental health, but there's a bigger stigma in the military, you know, when you and also in paramilitary or emergency services places, because these are often male-dominated and competitive mm. situations where strength is revered. And mental toughness. Mental, so physical and mental very much, and where weakness, you know, on the other side is absolutely to be, you know, is absolutely, you know. Well, it's frowned upon, isn't it? Yeah, it was completely frowned upon. It's sort of more than that. It's, yeah. you know, weakness is, is, is either not to be heard, and if it's seen, you know, you'll be jumped on, alienated, and yes. kind of worked, worked away from the rest of everybody else. So that's due to this psychological injuries within the military are either not volunteer or if they are volunteered are volunteered secretly to certain yeah. people and remain that way until the mental illness has got to the point where it's so severe that the individual uh, can't hide it anymore may have you know now have comorbid substance use mm. to try and self-treat may have lost their family relationship yeah. may may already be being isolated or put on lighter duties or taken off their duties, had their, you know, their weapons taken away from them or whatever, you know, and taken, you know, had various different you know, abilities to or allowances to do things taken away from them because of their medical situation or their psychological situation. And so what happens by the time we as treaters get to see them, we're way down the track yeah. in terms of the course of their illness and we encounter a much more severe and Complex. complicated mm. situation. Exactly. Whereas if everybody said, if you look, mate, if you're struggling psychologically, put up your hand like you would if you hurt your arm. We'll get you away. We'll put you in treatment. We'll rehabilitate you with the group with a full expectation that you'll be back at work in 
six to eight weeks once you're all medication and, mm. and you're all fine if you need it or you've had your psychological therapy and you're all fine mm-hmm. and, and you're moving forward and then you come back. And then everybody else around them gets to see that, oh, Joe put up his hand and said that he, had a, you know, he was struggling psychologically and now two months later he's back in the group and he's all working. That means you can do it and it hasn't had any kind of negative impact on his ability to remain employed, mm. be deployed where they can make more yeah. money and, and do the job that they're trained to do or be promoted. Yeah. So there's all these barriers to psychological, first of all, identification of psychological symptoms and then the, your ability to be effectively treated and remain effective in the workforce. Yeah, that, that ability to get, have that opportunity for early intervention to help reduce the complexity of what they're going through is something that is, I mean, you would, you would uh, get much better outcomes for, for patients at a much shorter time frame if you had that opportunity. Exactly, because yeah. you, with early intervention, what you're encountering is an illness in its either, you know, maybe even in its subsyndromal phase or in the very early phase of its presentation. So it's much more simple, much less complicated and probably a lot less severe. And like any chronic illness in medicine, let alone psychiatry, early intervention is shown to work. And so this is a key. Now, about, gee, it would be over 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, we had been trying to get into the barracks in terms of the program that I run, which is, you know, we run day programs, um, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy group programs for veterans at our hospital Wong. And we've been trying to crack into the barracks over at, you know, big Inogra barracks. Inogra, and, yeah. yeah. Trying to crack into them for years. Just knocking on the door, knocking our head against the wall, could never really get in. So sort of almost gave up because we just couldn't crack. They were like, we're looking after our own. We yeah, don't need private own. industry, you know. Yeah. Um, we've got our own processes, none of which were working very well, clearly. Okay. I've, an an incredible a really quite incredible brigadier had just taken over at Inogra and he actually came to us and said, look, Dr. Koo, can I just talk to you about how our guys with sort of post-traumatic psychological symptoms are being treated? I just want to know how you're supposed to treat them. And I said, sure, you know, what's, what do you want to know? And he said, well, I see this pattern of my troops putting their hand up or finally presenting to the, to the GPs because they've been told to, they're saying they've got post-trauma symptoms and basically they get taken off work, they get put on heavily tranquilizing medications and I never see them again. Is that good treatment? And I said, that's neither good treatment nor what the evidence suggests that we need to do. So I just said to him, these are the Australian guidelines for treating PTSD, just have a look at the the executive summary of these and come back and we'll have more of a talk. And, of course, he did, and he went away and he said, well, they're not getting any of this. And I said, well, we do this, you know, at the hospital here. Why Why don't we see what happens? And he goes, well, before we do that, he goes, this is a major change in in the way we work here. Before we do that, Dr. Kerr, how many 
if I send you these guys, how many of those are you going to send back to me? And they'll be redeployable, not re-employable, but redeployable. And, oh. and I said, I've got no idea. I've got no idea because no one has ever given us these currently serving guys at this, you know, the only time we really got to treat people is when they discharged from the army, they were on DVA and then DVA would pay for them okay. to do the courses at our hospital. Yeah. So I said, oh, I can't. What I can tell you is that when we've got our work cover program, which covers the emergency services guys, that we're returning this percentage of them to work. And, and he goes, well, if you can even do that, this is worth everyone's while. So he sent, he started sending his currently serving guys. Now, obviously, whenever you start a new treatment in, in no matter what situation you're in, you always get sent the worst cases first. Okay. That no one can handle, okay. right? So we, you know, expected that that would happen, but we didn't care because we were just excited to get guys that are currently serving. So many of them were actually on a track to discharge or, but of the, still of the cohort that we then saw over the next three years, that this guy got, was getting everyone to send over, we returned, I think, 30% of them back to military work. And so he was really happy with that. We were pretty happy with that. When we broke down those results and looked at how many of these guys that we returned uh, or how many guys that were sent to us were actually already on medical discharge, so that okay. was a sort of a, a one-way ticket yeah. if you like and so we couldn't really have affected them anyway mm. if we looked at the guys that he sent that didn't know whether we were going to stay in or go know whether they were going to go out and looked at how many of them we returned it was more like 75 to 80 percent so it just goes That's to incredible. show if, yeah. we, if you get early intervention if we get sent mm. people who are motivated to rehabilitate we can get really good outcomes was the Brigadier also trying to reduce the stigma amongst the barracks as far as trying to encourage people to, who were showing signs of PTSD in a much earlier phase come to you guys? Was he encouraging that or were you still only seeing the complex um, cases when they were a fair way down the track? Yeah, good question. So most of the, of the guys who we were seeing were the complex guys. I don't think that that – I think his main uh, – and look – this is, my, this is my kind of estimation of what yes. he was doing at that point. But I think his main thing was about, I don't want guys just, I just want, don't want guys to put up their hand and never be seen again. Yeah. Okay. He goes, this doesn't seem like the right treatment. So he just wanted them to be treated right and to be offered the best types of treatment. But the downstream effect of doing what he was doing was making other soldiers see that you can volunteer mental health symptoms and, and come back, back to work which can't help but have a destigmatized sort of effect in terms of more broadly on the, on the other soldiers that see this happening, but also start changing the whole paradigm to a rehabilitative one rather than a, a sort of end of career one. Yes, yeah. It's an important distinction that though and, and what an opportunity as well and how oh. fortunate that was that it came. So I felt really fortunate to be yeah. because we'd never been able to study that and so it was it was a really great thing in terms of what i'll be talking about at the conference yeah this time so we're many years down the track now we're about 10 years down the track wow. now since that was happening and so we've got a lot of people to look at now and in fact we've started to look at the currently serving as well as the ex-serving guys 
how many come onto our program and can we treat and what is what's the flow on in terms of their ability to return to work and this has become really much more important to us because we also uh, from the pure fact that of a of a finding we had from another study that we did in between which showed that so what a lot of what the focus of a lot of the um, the ex-servings guys is is to get on a pension. Yeah. Okay. Which is understandable from a financial perspective, and certainly understandable if they're really just permanently impaired and they can't they can't do anything. Yes. Okay. But unfortunately, what we found is that even though that is a financial imperative for those around, and so this is what we call I don't know if you've heard of this um, acronym. They call it TPI. Total and permanent incapacity. Okay. Or impairment. Total and permanent impairment or incapacity. And basically what that means is they get a pension um, or a big payout that they can either take all at once or spread out over their life. Yeah, for the rest of their life exactly. I hear they get a certain yep. amount. Yep. So unfortunately this piece of information which we looked at, which looked at suicidal behaviour in, in veterans that had done our program, it showed that a predictor for, sui- for a suicide attempt was obviously unemployment because people who are yeah. unemployed... No money. Yeah, and have no reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yes, no okay, purpose. Which is a really important, the key thing, that there was the same level of risk for suicide behaviour if you were unemployed versus if you were on this TPI. Is that right? Yeah, so... What this is showing is the importance of purposefulness, meaningfulness, you know, right. in terms of your day-to-day activity. A reason to get out of bed in the morning, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, or feel like one is not only providing, but one has a, a meaning, a meaning mm. in terms of their day-to-day activity. So really important stuff. So, you know, what I'd say to a lot of doctors and to a lot of ex-serving people, no matter what they've served in or where they've had their trauma and what they're doing now after they've transitioned, is that you need to have purposeful activity in your life. You need to have meaning for what you do day to day. Otherwise, your prognosis is significantly worse. And this might be going off on a different tangent, but I mean, I, I know guys probably similar to you who have been in the police force or the military who, who have been, who ha- are on the pension and permanent TPI or whatever you would call that. Where's the incentive? Because, I mean, when they're on this, they're not allowed to go and find – they're not allowed to study in some instances. They're not allowed to do reskilling. They're not allowed to do many things unless they get permission that they can actually go and do some of these things. But they're like – they sit at home. They listen to podcasts all day. They Mm. Like where's – as far as your mental state, you do need that purpose and – I don't know. Is the system broken? Is uh, similar to the veterans? I'm I'm not sure on the military, but mm. you know, when you get paid, as you said, it made no difference in that sense. But when you paid that amount of money, whatever it is, every year for the rest of your life, and if you reskill or requalify or finish a degree in something different, in that instance, it can then be taken off you. But then they're like, well, why, where's the incentive if I'm still getting paid the money? It's, do you think the model's broken? Yeah, well, that if. That model, as you're stating there, is totally broken. Yeah. It's, there, there's, it's unquestionably broken, particularly based on, you know, what this research that we did actually found and which I'm sure if people d- did this research, they'd also find because it just makes sense, right? Yeah. So what, what, what I'd say is 
is that the the situation as we have it now is that the, the for instance the, the Department of Veterans Affairs is now much more enlightened towards this, and so now when you get those pensions, if you retrain and you do want to return to work, you can, okay. But it means that as you start earning, you you decrease the payments you get okay. from the DVA. What a lot of guys worry about is then if I show the capacity to do that, does that mean I can never get that back? But that isn't the case okay. now. So they're, they're much more enlightened about this and they'll be even further enlightened after this Royal Commission shows yeah. all this kind of stuff as well. But this is, this is they, people need incentive. I mean, it's the same for, for military as well as police and, and you know, emergency services personnel sports stars, you know, they go from this really purpose-driven, structured, you know, very important role to nothing. Yeah. You know, afterwards, and it's almost predictable that they'll struggle. It is is normal that they will struggle when they stop that, let alone if they've got mental health disorders that led to the stoppage of that. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? So it's it's just predictable. I mean, how many sports stars have you heard that have entered it a depression after their kind of very purpose-driven, goal-directed kind of activity stopped. Well, I reached out to a lot of the uh, a lot of the player organisations of all the different major sports in Australia and the AAAH as well to see what we could do to help a lot of retiring athletes. Right, because this is brought up Libby Trigger, who's on our board uh, oh, okay. as well went through a similar thing and she she was like we got to do more for athletes who are retiring they lose once they get out of that structured environment you were saying they they lo- they get told what to wear where to be when to train during their professional career and at the end of that all of a sudden the shackles have come off and they're up to their own devices and then they don't look after their health as much because it's they've done it for so long they don't they don't you know get the sleep they don't have the identity anymore that they used to have they don't know what to do next and so they feel this pressure like what am i i still don't know what i want to do so then but but in a lot of situations the retirement's forced upon them due to injury or age or whatever have whatever happens performance and, and so you're right i mean are you seeing is ptsd also re- relevant in that area are we is it is that a different sort of a thing it, it is slightly different in that what we're now starting to talk about is something that is huge in terms of veteran research and that is something we call transition yes which is going from military to, to the civilian. civilian world okay yeah? so the transition so this is all this discussion we're having now is all around transition it's just as much as an issue for police mm. for fireys you know it's and all emergency services, just as much an issue as it is for athletes. Yeah. I mean, I got this great quote, having spoken about this before on, on a num- in a number of different kind of areas around athletes finishing, just based on because of my work with veterans and other purpose-driven or very goal-directed purpose-driven different vocations and working with them. But I've got this great quote where a very well-known sporting personality said that you go from one of the best there is at doing what you do to someone that isn't even the best at what you're talking about at the breakfast table. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. um, an yeah. absolute expert and then to someone who doesn't, who's not even an expert in their own household. And it's sad, isn't it? Because you see, you know, really, and whether you're talking about the military and a very alpha environment to then going back and, and they don't feel like they fit in anymore. No. And that they're, they're some of the challenges about trying to fit back in to that civilian 
lifestyle that they probably, you know, had years 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 ago. But and uh, life feels meaningless to them. Yeah, and also they don't forget it's very much compounded by the loss of physical effectiveness. So, okay. and I don't don't just mean they can't do what they used to do, but you know their body changes. Yeah, and that is a massive hit to their identity as well that compounds, you know, their loss of status. So we're 10 years down the track almost that mm. since you've rolled out this with the inaugural barracks, what are we seeing now? You've obviously mentioned that the people that are already discharged but also the people that you're keeping in the program and staying and being employed and deployed still within the service. Mm-hmm. Where to from here? Okay, so I think... We just need to keep hammering home this message of early intervention. We need to keep hammering home this message of this apparently incurable phenomenon we've got of stigma in the military. I mean, that is changeable, but I, don't, I only believe it's changeable in the way that, that we've already discussed in that we just take a completely rehabilitative focus to all mental health, just like we do to physical health within the military. Just as we get sidetracked, I'll just just circle back to what we're going to present or I'm going to present yes. today, which is now that we have these numbers now over 300 in the last 10 years, of these aren't just um, currently serving guys, these are also ex-serving guys yes. because we're, we're trying to return them all to yeah. some kind of meaningful act. What we found is that even just doing this PTSD program, which runs for at the last follow-up point is 12 months later, okay. it doesn't run you know, all the way through the 12 months, that's yeah. the last follow-up point got for them we've found that interestingly and we've divided them up into those that are dva Mm. so they're ex-serving versus those that are currently serving now what we find is the dva population despite the fact they're all improving significantly on their symptom scores with respect to their ptsd we're actually seeing a decrease in those people that are actively looking for work and you and employed in work we're actually seeing a decrease in the in the dva population okay so so there are a number of reasons why we think that's happening but on the flip side those that are currently serving when they come onto our program if we look at the beginning how many of them were looking at stopping work altogether or how many of them are looking to continue work whether that continued work is in the military or the civilian world it's gone from 30% to 60% wow. by the time they've finished the program. Double. So thank God yeah. uh, we're making that change. We can't, and, and I think we're seeing the, the diminution or the slight decrease. It's only about 5% in terms of the before and, and impressions of the DVA population. We think that that might have to do with maybe a bit of a contagion effect amongst the group of all. Oh, of knowing what compensation things that, 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 you know, hearing about compensation issues that they weren't aware of. And so they're, and also a lot of them are coming to us having just failed in a civilian work role. And so they're sort of seen, they're seeing very much that work's not good for them. So yeah, so there's a whole lot of sort of theories we've got. Tell me, it would have been quite challenging well, you know what would have been a big move for the brigadier to come and get this external yep. private practice program and and people to come in and do this so the confidence he's shown in you but how would he have changed the internal 
structures because it would have always been that way. That's the way it is. This is what happens. It would have been quite a challenge for him to do that. Yeah, look, he, he had significant opposition and probably put a lot of other noses out of joint okay. within the military, but he stood by his principles of standing up for the health of his men, which is just incredible, just went against the machine. The great thing is, is that this guy is still climbing within the military. So I, I would so he's still, I would hope he would end up chief of yeah. your chief of defence because this guy is a, he's a game changer in terms of mental health. Yeah. What, what does happen from there though, Sam, and what has happened from there, it very much depends what happens at each particular barracks on the CEO of the barracks and what he thinks. And they okay. rotate every few years. Okay, the guy that came after him was another really exceptional guy and he continued that on. The guy that came after that guy was a much more, he was a much less rehabilitation treatment of unhealthy service members focused. He was much more focused on deployment and and sort of combat effectiveness and all that kind of, so it fell away under him and then it just depends on what the different COs are like since. Well, okay, so there's been three different changes. There's been five. Holy Yeah, dooly. so there's been two others after that guy as well. But oh. unfortunately, because there was this hiatus that was from one of the guys being there, it kind of, we never developed the momentum back. And so it's going to take another one of these exceptional guys, hopefully, to, to really ratchet it up again. But the great thing is, is that what happened is that the GPs at the barracks <coughs> and the health professionals at the barracks know and have now become very au fait with the fact that there is this kind of program that runs and, and that, that there is a, a hardened referral roof referral. that now exists. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're more open to this now that you've had runs on the board and getting good Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And we've got some really good relationships with the, the uniformed and non-uniformed GPs or medical officers that work out at the barracks. I was going to say, you're working uh, together and they're... And they're a lot more open to this than when you first did it because uh, chalk and cheese. Yeah, yeah, that man, that's really good. I mean, the, the fact that you're having this sort of success is truly amazing. And, and ha- the question is, how do we roll? How do you roll this out on a, on a larger scale? Okay, that that is the question. I mean, certainly, what has happened? So around Australia, so there are programs like mine around Australia, and and. They're accredited by the Department of Veterans Affairs. You've got to, to, if you're an accredited program, the department will fund you to, to run these programs. There's anywhere between that are active around Australia between like 12 to 16 at any one time over the last few years. And what has happened as a result of all this happening is that Tuong has become very busy program. Okay. The other programs still struggle. Okay. And and I think because we developed that kind of hardened referral pathway and also because we're in Brisbane, which is surrounded by a number of major yeah. uh, military yeah. barracks. Yeah. yeah. So we've stayed really busy, which has been good, but, you know, it would only be a very small minority of military guys who have post-traumatic stress disorder that actually do these programs. And, and that's the worry, isn't it? There's people out there in other barracks, in other... In states, other states, locations yep. that don't have this opportunity. Yeah, that's right. And I really believe that it offers a significant benefit to the individual 
even if they've already got therapy in place, we've shown that it's a significant augmenter of that therapy anyway. So it is, it is definitely a value add. It is independently, all these programs are independently assessed, yeah. outcome assessed. We don't assess them ourselves. They're independently assessed by a place uh, that is subcontracted by the DVA and the ADF to make sure that these places are working, that they're paying for. But Andrew, it's not only the benefit of the individual, but the organisation, like the defence, the military are going to benefit from this as well. Well, they'll get a, and particularly the earlier that they refer, the greater percentage they'll get back. Yeah. And these are these are assets that they've put a lot of money into. Mm. You know what I mean? So it makes yeah. sense for them to keep that experience on board. So, Well, mate, it certainly sounds logical. Whether or not we can get this in... Um, <laughs> Yeah, implemented throughout the rest of the 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 rest of the areas in Australia with the other brigades or barracks. I mean, it's yet to be seen. But the fact that you're having such success is a credit to you on the team. Obviously, at Tawong Private, so well done on that. And and Andrew, is there any any way people can get in touch with you if they want to know more about this? How how would they reach out? Oh well, if if they want to know anything about our programs, it's certainly all on the um, the website which is the Tuong Private Hospital website. You can look it up there. They can contact us directly and talk to us about, about the, the programs. And this is treaters or sufferers mm-hmm. um, or sufferers carers. You can reach out to us just by simply ringing uh, us directly, which is 07 for Queensland, but 3721 8055. Andrew, it's been really interesting having a chat to you about this and, and some of the stuff... Well, a lot of this stuff that you're doing, whilst it's logical, I mean, it's certainly, in some respects, groundbreaking in this in this sense of what you're doing with the military and getting the results that you're getting. So congratulations to you and the team. I wish you all the best with that. And mate, keep an eye on it because I think, uh, I mean, it makes sense. And it, and it should be, the uptake should be a lot higher in other areas of Australia. With Thank all you very emergency much. Services, so. Yeah, I've got a great team and it's all down to them. They're just a magnificent bunch of people who are very passionate about what they do and, and the, you know, the results, the results speak to that. Well, thanks very much for your time, Andrew. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.